then you do have objection to the act. Well, we know that, Cromwell. Uh, no, my lord, you don't. You may suppose I have objections. All you know is that I will not swear to it, for which you cannot lawfully harm me further. But if you were right in supposing me to have objections, and right again in supposing my objections to be treasonable, the law would let you cut my head off. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Yes, we're back in England. Again. Sorry, my podcast, and I enjoy these subjects. Also, it's just way easier to find movies that fit. And something I think that we neglect in the U.S., if we started as a British colony, then British history before those colonies is American history. Not all Americans, obviously, but for America as a political entity. Today we'll get into the reign of Henry VIII, who most people probably have a very incomplete, if not incorrect, view of. He's the fat king who killed all his wives, right? Um, no, just two of them. And another died due to complications of childbirth. But like Richard III, he's far from as evil as his reputation would have you believe. And physically speaking, think of him like Marlon Brando. Fit heartthrob when he was younger, who got fat as he got older. Let's bridge the gap from his father from our episode two weeks ago. Henry VII was crowned in 1485 after defeating Richard III in battle. He had four children, Arthur, Margaret, Henry, and Mary, in that order. Arthur was raised to be his heir and future king, but died at the age of 15. No woman had ever been Queen of England, though Matilda, Henry II's mother, tried, if you remember. And with a second son available, Margaret wasn't about to be the first. She was married off to the King of Scotland, making her the ancestor of the Stuart monarchs. So the crown fell to Henry in 1509 upon his father's death when he was just 17 years old. Now, today's movie isn't really focused on Henry VIII. The protagonist is Sir Thomas More, a lawyer and advisor to the king. The king isn't exactly the antagonist, though he's definitely one of them. The film takes place over several years, from roughly 1529 to 1535, so we're two decades into Henry's reign, and the king is in his late 30s. The events of the film seem condensed down to less time than that, but that's when they all actually occurred. The long and short of it is that Henry wants to divorce his first wife and marry Anne Boleyn. Before I get into the details of the film itself, just a little more backstory about Henry's first marriage. It was to the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, yes, the folks who funded Columbus's expedition. Her name was Catherine, almost always seen as Catherine of Aragon, after her father's ancestral home. She was first married to Arthur, Henry's older brother, but he died just 20 weeks after they were married. Henry VII still wanted the marriage alliance and quickly suggested that his newly widowed daughter-in-law could just later marry his 10-year-old son, Henry. The young prince was not in favor of this, but... When Henry VII died seven years later, he had come around and the new king married his brother's widow. In order for this to happen, they had to get special permission from the Pope. That Pope happened to be Julius II from last week's The Agony and the Ecstasy. Catherine insisted that her marriage to Arthur had never been consummated, so that made things simple enough. But as the 20 years passed between their marriage and today's story, Henry grew increasingly frustrated with his lack of an heir. He knew the country couldn't afford to be right back in the same situation it was in before his father united the houses of Lancaster and York. Of at least six pregnancies in, in her marriage to Henry, four resulted in stillborn babies. One boy died just seven weeks after birth, and only one girl, Mary, survived to adulthood. 
Henry claimed God had cursed him for marrying his brother's widow, and honestly, I believe he may sincerely have believed that. Before his upcoming rift with the church, Henry was a fairly devout Catholic. He thought his brother's marriage to Catherine must have been consummated, or the Pope's special dispensation had been insufficient, or even if it hadn't been consummated, maybe the Pope had no right to grant a dispensation anyway, and now it seemed that the marriage was obviously against God's wishes. Three dead newborn sons, not to mention the daughters. How, how is it not a sign from God? Plus, Henry had a bastard son with one of his mistresses who lived long enough to get married himself. It was almost as if God was openly mocking him. So, A Man for All Seasons opens with Cardinal Wolsey, played by Orson Welles, sending a message for Thomas More to come and meet with him. Wolsey says the king needs a son and admonishes More by asking him, Or do you think two tutors is sufficient? More basically says that he prays for the king's wife to have a son, despite everything I've just laid out with her troubles. We see More back at home where he says he will not give his daughter permission to marry a heretic. He is referring to the fact that her boyfriend has come under the sway of the arguments of Martin Luther. It would have been about 12 years since Luther began his Reformation and just three or so since he began organizing a new church altogether. Moore, in the film, sees this as a heresy, and he likely did in reality. The young man later recants and says his problems are not with the church itself and that Luther is kind of going too far to branch out on his own. So Moore does agree that they can marry. And quick side note, Moore's son-in-law wrote a brief biography of Moore that is available online. After Cardinal Wolsey dies, Moore becomes Lord Chancellor of the Realm. He has a good rapport with Henry VIII, and though his issues with the proposed divorce are known, everyone seems to think that he'll cave and give support just like everyone else has. The king comes with his full entourage to Moore's home to woo his new chancellor. We get a brief exchange of Henry speaking Latin with Moore's oldest daughter, which I only mention because both of them did, in fact, speak Latin. Perhaps not uncommon for a king to be so educated, but... It was very uncommon at the time that Moore had made sure his daughter was also so well-educated. Before the company all sits down to eat, Henry meets with Moore one-on-one and wants to know his stance on the pending divorce and remarriage. Like, it's already happening. They don't need Moore's permission. Henry here is very charismatic, as he is reported to have been in real life. He gives all the arguments I've already stated with his trouble to get a male heir, and as that he's living in incest by remaining married to his brother's widow. Moore, however, cannot give the king the answer he desires, and his whole entourage promptly leaves before anyone gets a chance to eat. We see Henry's famous temper as well here. Moore's wife begins to fear for his safety, but he assures her that he's no martyr. What it boils down to is this. Moore is convinced he'll be safe because he's never actually stated that he is against anything the king is doing, even to his wife. He basically just constantly pleads the fifth. That wasn't around yet, but same principle. He insists that his silence, from a legal standpoint, must be construed as him consenting and not objecting to any of the king's actions. Moore does, though, resign his post as Lord Chancellor. Though he may be right legally, public opinion, not only in England but on the continent, is that a high-ranking citizen, Thomas More, is openly defying the king and causing Henry a lot of embarrassment. Henry's wedding to Anne Boleyn proceeds, and the king and his officials hope that Moore will at least attend. Then it can be publicly argued that he supports it. Moore refuses to go. Again, he openly states he wishes everyone involved all the best, but we see that his conscience won't let him go. He continues to note that he hasn't said anything that should put him in jeopardy. 
what people assume are his reasons for not attending are not legally valid. By this point in England, Moore had just become a giant sore thumb. Parliament declares that an oath must be signed in support of the king's marriage. Everyone signs it except Moore. There's also the issue of Henry declaring himself the head of the church in England. Now, historically, it's actually unclear what the exact charges against Moore were, whether it had to do with the marriage, the line of succession, the king's role in the church, or some combination of all three. Regardless, Thomas More was arrested for treason in 1534 and held in the Tower of London to await trial. Several months pass, and in the film, we see his family visit him to make one last-ditch effort to convince him to sign the oath. In the trial, we see the judges trying to get More to admit to something. He says, my refusal to sign means nothing more than I refuse to sign. You have no legal right to assume it means anything. They go back and forth like this, and it really seems like he might get off, but then we get testimony from a former friend of Moore's who claims Moore told him privately that the king had no right to be the head of the Church of England. Moore calmly states that this is a lie. He seems really disappointed in that former friend, but it's enough for the jury to quickly convict Moore. In the movie, the judge suggests that they don't even need to deliberate, and in reality, they only did so for about 15 minutes before passing a guilty verdict. Thomas More was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, similar to what we saw William Wallace receive in Braveheart, but the king had mercy on him and he was beheaded instead. In the movie, we only ever know of the beheading. The alternative method is never mentioned. The film also correctly shows an executioner asking More's forgiveness and More quickly putting the man's mind at ease. Be not afraid of your office. You send me to God, he says to the man. A Man for All Seasons won the 1966 Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Director Fred Zinnemann, and Best Actor for Paul Schofield, who portrayed more. It has an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Zinnemann also directed High Noon and From Here to Eternity. So as far as what it chose to show us, the movie pretty much got its facts straight. The problems are with what the story omits. Thomas More was straight up ruthless in dealing with Protestants. We did see him in the film refer to them as heretics, but he meant that literally, as in they should be burned at the stake. In the two and a half years he served as Lord Chancellor, six people were burned at the stake, a couple of them simply for selling books that had been deemed heretical. More supposed to have even said that they were well and worthily burned. Another aspect of More worth noting is that he was an author. He wrote a fiction story called Utopia, which some credit with popularizing the idea of utopian or dystopian stories we still see today with things like The Hunger Games or The Walking Dead. Moore was officially named a saint in 1935. In the year 2000, Pope John Paul II named him the patron of statesmen and politicians. And let's finish our tale with a rundown of the remaining wives of Henry VIII. Anne Boleyn was executed less than a year after Thomas More. Fairly ironic after you considered he died because he wouldn't agree to them getting married. She hadn't had any more luck than her predecessor in providing the king with a son. They did have a daughter, Elizabeth, named for Henry's mother. Anne miscarried a son after she was already on thin ice with the king. She was fiery in a way that might have been fun for a mistress, but was just not appropriate for a queen. There was no doubt a lot of politics involved, and Anne and her family had their enemies and were quickly losing the king's protection by falling out of his, his good graces. That miscarried son was understood at the time to be the beginning of the end for Anne. Similar to Moore, we don't know the exact case against her. Supposed charges range from conspiracy, adultery, or even witchcraft. Ten days after Anne's execution, Henry married Jane Seymour, who had already been his mistress. The following year, the couple had a son, the heir the king needed. 
but Jane died the same month from complications of childbirth. So that's three wives down and a child with each who would each sit on the throne, but we'll come back to that. His fourth marriage came a little over two years later and was 100% a political one to Anne of Cleves, sister of the German Duke of Cleves. He couldn't have cared less about her or be less interested in her. They were married for only half a year, and the marriage was annulled as having never been consummated. That's four wives down. And brief tangent here, a major player in the film who sought to bring about Moore's downfall was Thomas Cromwell. He was the one guiding the state's case against Moore, and the film implies that he bribed the key witness to lie to the court. But ironically, Cromwell was the chief orchestrator of Henry's marriage to Anne of Cleves here, and he had his own political enemies that used this disaster of a marriage to bring him down. He was charged with corruption, heresy, and various treasonous plots. Cromwell was executed without a trial in 1540, just five years after Thomas More. And he is a distant uncle of Oliver Cromwell, who will rule England after the execution of Charles I. Moving on with Henry's wives. Next came Catherine Howard. I saw a brief YouTube video that basically summed her up by saying she was just caught up in the cascade of history. She was 30 years younger than Henry, in her late teens when they married. It seems she had a lover prior to marrying the king, and when this all came to light and there were letters dated after her marriage to the king, she was executed for treason. Adultery against the king is treason. Again, she was caught up in all the politics that led to her being thrust from relative obscurity to Queen of England and then destroyed. Their marriage lasted about a year and a half. That's five wives down. His final wife was Catherine Parr. She was a noble and herself descended from some kings of England. She was twice widowed and a family friend of Henry's first wife and his daughter Mary. They married in 1543 when Henry was 52 years old and she was 31. She helped reconcile Henry with his daughters. His marriage to each of their mothers obviously did not end well. The couple had no children and Henry died less than four years after they were married. So the little line I always heard to remember it puts Henry's wives in two groups of three that repeat, except for the end there. So divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And it probably doesn't help keeping them straight when it was three Catherines, two Anne's, and a Jane. Also, it's fitting that Orson Welles was in this movie, as both he and Henry VIII were strong, attractive young men who, like Brando I mentioned at the beginning, grew famously fat as they got older. After Henry's death, his son Edward by Jane became King Edward VI at the age of nine. The boy only lived to be 15 years old, however, and had no heirs of his own. He was succeeded by his sister Mary after a short failed attempt to place Lady Jane Grey on the throne instead, making Mary the first Queen of England. She was the so-called Bloody Mary for her ruthlessness toward Protestants and her attempt to turn England back to Catholicism. Mary was married but never had any children, so her Protestant sister Elizabeth, the daughter of Henry and Anne Boleyn, became Queen Elizabeth I and ruled for more than 44 years. Elizabeth never married and the Tudor line died with her. Though it lasted 118 years, the Tudor dynasty was just three generations, Henry VII, his son Henry VIII, and Henry VIII's three children but we will visit Elizabeth I again in a month or so. Elsewhere in the world around this time, a big one we've already mentioned is Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation, which coincided with much of the reign of Henry VIII, and without which one wonders if Henry would have been so bold as to separate himself from Rome. Martin Luther died just about a year before Henry VIII did. Almost during the exact time span as our film today, the Inca were engaged in a civil war in what is now Peru, 
And the year after, Thomas More became Lord Chancellor of England. Ivan Vasilevich, I'm sure I nailed that, was born near Moscow. And that's where we're headed next week. As you likely know Vasilevich as Ivan the Terrible. <laughs>